Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. Hey, welcome back everybody to this edition of the Birthing Instincts Podcast. Hello, hello. I'm here in Los Angeles, and where are you? I am just outside of Seattle in Washington. I, I like living vicariously through your travels. Yeah. And seeing your posts and your pictures. Lots of running water. Like water, I see. <laughs> water makes me happy. Water and trees. That's it. Yep. Uh, anything special that you want to? get into it for, for your news before I get into some births and things that we had going on this week. I'm back in full swing here. Yeah, I bet you are. Um, now, I just thought you might ask where I was going. So hold on one sec. I'm going to tell you where I'm going. So um, does anyone really know where they're going? <laughs> does anyone really know what day it is? <laughs> Do you know where you're going to? Um, so I'm going to. Does anybody tomorrow. really care? <laughs> that's, I don't know. No, that's, that's, my, cool. that's my Saturday in the Park song. You remember that? Saturday, that Saturday one? In the Park, yeah. Yeah. So um, I am going to take a ferry, which is kind of exciting to put hope on a ferry at Molcatillo. Mokotillo, yeah. Um, and then I'm going to go up the islands. Um, I'm hoping to camp in Deception Pass before I end up in on the Orca Islands. Um, and that's probably about as north as I'm going to get. So Canada won't let me in. So um, yeah, and I'm going to be staying on the islands with the, with um a midwife who actually was the midwife who caught Sky. No. Yeah. Oh my God, that's going to be kind of cool. And I've been to the uh, the uh, the San Juan Islands up there, and uh, I went on a bike trip there with my friend Bruce a long time ago. Yes. And, uh, it was great because it's beautiful, and it wasn't as hilly as some of the other trips we went on. So <laughs> that's uh, what you remember about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, she said I could come and stay as long as I want. And so that's kind of been my intention is to get there and give myself some time to just be. So I'll be there for as long as, you know, it. it's compatible. Um, I'll be there for a few weeks. Great. Um, tomorrow, which will be past tense by the time this airs next week, I'll be in Bozeman, Montana. Oh, that's right. Uh, You're doing, flying out tomorrow. Doing my first uh, reteach breach seminar since last year in Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> so, uh, but things are starting to pick up again. We're going to be in Texas in um, in uh, November, and I think we're going to be in Kentucky in March with uh, uh, indie birth people. So, um, yeah. Marin and Margot. Um, anyway, how's had your launch going? How did how did the launch of your new program? go so far uh well it was well well received by two people so far <laughs> <laughs> um it's really interesting thing i'm getting from um some people when i they'll they'll send me a question and i'll answer their question i'll say you know i've started this consultation service and i said so go to the link and sign up for anything in the future that you need 
and they all say okay and then they don't sign up so we'll see what happens if next time maybe they stop asking me questions or maybe they find that it's got value we'll find out yeah okay either way, I win. Either way I win this is true either way it's a, you put up some boundaries and no matter what it's good Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll either be on the phone less or on the email less, or I'll at least get paid for being on the phone or the email. So that'll be good. I, I had two births this week. Um, one oh, was births. a client of our buddy, uh, Alex's. It was a woman who'd been pushing. It was a previous C-section mm-hmm. or, you know, indication. And mm-hmm. um, she'd been pushing with her second baby for three hours or so. And Alex called and I just happened to be home and I buzzed over there at like seven in the morning and uh, put a vacuum on a baby came out beautifully it was asynclitic. You could really see how clearly asynclitic it was, which probably yeah. happened with her first baby as well. And um, no tears much to my surprise because she was really swollen before I put the vacuum on. And sometimes it's kind of mushy and things just kind of get, <laughs> that's a word yeah. it's not <laughs> um, i did do something interesting though i did give her an injection of lidocaine at Before. six o'clock at six o'clock just in case i was going to have to cut an episiotomy i'm not sure if that made any difference at all um but it certainly when i was putting pressure on and holding and putting ice on it sort of made her bottom a little bit more comfortable Anyway, that was beautiful. So that's a service that we still have here in LA, which uh, haven't had, I haven't been called to a vacuum much at all lately. So I don't know if there's just less vacuums. People are less willing to call. People don't want to pay. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's way down in volume from when I first started doing home birthing. Um, the second birth was just a primip. It was a very, very long labor and ended up, uh, we transported to the hospital and almost 20 hours later she was pushing and uh for whatever reason um just never descended past about plus one station with a lot of caput she went to our dear friend at cedars uh she got really good care there i want to commend the the staff there for the care that they got and her obviously for our friend dr crane and um she ended up getting a c-section um mm. the baby was with her the entire time they never took the baby away even though the baby had a tachycardia at the end of about 180 185 um peds came down as they do to all c-sections checked the baby out and left and the parents mm. were with the baby the entire time as far as i know and that was yesterday great um great yeah so that's good that's the kind of collaboration we really like to see i wish we just had more options than uh, bothering a certain number of people um, a certain few number of people all the time. It would be nice to be able to spread that around. <laughs> Bothering more people. <laughs> or, but less but less often. Right, exactly. Right. I would be thrilled if we had more people doing what I'm doing and then I would be asked questions less often. So it would be, it would be nice. It would be nice to get more people. Well, it would just be interested. Yeah, it would be in, good in, for everybody. In doing, and, what, and what's going on in the hospitals these days I mean, today's a big day, apparently, because today was the final day where if hospital workers in a number of states, I don't know if it's nationwide or whatever, if they didn't get vaccinated, they were going to be fired. So will it be interesting? We'll talk about that next week when, when we're back on and we know more about 
what happened. But it's not a very good place to work right now. Every doula I talk to, every midwife I talk to, every birth photographer I talk to, they basically say it's just, it's not comfortable. You just, there's such a level of anxiety of going to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a level of anxiety going anywhere these days, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the hospital is definitely, you know, it's always been a little intense, but with the COVID situation, it's much more so, Hey, I wanted to um, give you and our, I mean, you might know this, but you've never mentioned it before. And our listeners an update. I was listening to one of Russell Brand's videos. If you don't watch him, he's pretty brilliant because he stays neutral about what you should do about the vaccine, but he talks a lot about the news um, and politics and corruption. A lot of the stuff that we talk about, um, from but from a different perspective. It's really great. And he was saying there was a little video on about um, the Facebook fact checkers are um, some of the funding comes from Johnson and Johnson. Um, it's not shocking to anybody who's paying attention. The the the, the um, yeah. The, the, well, there you go. The interconnected webbing of all these people being re, uh, uh, recycled. They leave a government job. They go to work for a private uh, organization that lobbies the government. And big tech is in bed with the press, which is in bed with politics, which is in bed with big pharma. I mean. But he said that he that they commented and said uh, that there wasn't a conflict of interest. And he said, of course, there's not a conflict of interest because there's no conflict. Everything is going in the direction of, you know, what what their agenda would be. But anyways, that was I thought that was a interesting evidence that there is a something more than than what meets the eye with the fact checkers on Facebook. Well, good for you, Bliss. I hope everybody that listens to us is, is woken up from that um, and, under, and understands that. Hey, listen, um, people who've been following me on Instagram, they've noticed that I reposted recently a picture of a bunch of twin legs all entangled. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's one of my uh, most active posts ever. And it was also very active in February of 2020 when I posted it the first time. And after almost 18 months up on the internet, uh, Instagram uh, took it down for violation of its policies. And, and, and if you go to the my Instagram feed, you'll birthing instincts, you'll find it. And I state that they take things down for a, a harassment and violence and citing things and, and nudity, sexual, sexual mm -hmm. yeah, whatever. And so it, the picture showed a bunch of fetal legs on top of a mom. And in the top of the picture, there was a little baby bum and you could see the baby labia. Mm -hmm. So after 18 months of being up, they took it down. So I cropped it and put it back up again, and now it seems to be fine. But it, it, it's funny to me that, what, did they just decide that now? Did the rules change? I mean, I see some very, very sexual um, pictures on, on Instagram. Uh, women happen to be wearing, wearing their underwear or bikini, but, but it's, you know, I don't exactly understand the insensibilities of um, Instagram to take that down with leaving a lot of the stuff that they leave up. So again, I don't, no one really understands the, the, the fact checkers and the censors and the bots, but um, it, no one's free from it. 
All you have to do is mention a word that has to do with the jab and you get a COVID warning and go to the CDC website on, on your posts. Everything is, everything is to go to the CDC website and we'll get to that in a second. Um, I have a, I have a quick review because it's funny. Well, because before you do that, just, um, I want to mention that our topic today, we're going to be talking about diabetes. Um, so we're going to talk about diabetes and how it relates to pregnancy in general. And then we're also going to go over, um, diabetes testing in pregnancy and, um, and what, how we would manage um, gestational diabetes and pregnancy. And next time we, given some of our listeners have asked us questions about informed consent related to normal testing in pregnancy. So we did talk about um, GBS and this time we're gonna be talking about gestational diabetes. And then next week, we're gonna talk about um, all of the basic labs that uh, most providers would do at the beginning of um, when you come into care. And then just talk about what is what is true informed consent having to do with the specifics of those tests. So I just kind of wanted to give a little heads up about what our topic is today. Yeah, and I'm gonna actually talk a little bit about why I do things differently than um, with diabetics in the home birthing world and, and how the, the guidelines are meant to be guidelines and not rigid, you know, rigid uh, laws. Um, I, got the, I got this review, which I thought was just this uh, letter from somebody, an uh, Instagram um, fellow traveler. And she, she writes, I just listened to episode number 154. So that's a while back. And that's on vaccines that you recorded in September of 2019. Mm -hmm. I'm cracking up because you touch on so many things that are so much more prevalent right now since the pandemic happened. And of course, at that time, you had no idea what was to come, i.e. the warning on your Facebook page about vaccines, personal choice versus being forced, etc. If you only knew then what was coming in just a few short months. On another note, so glad I found your podcast. I've been binging as I prepare for my first home birth. So cool. uh, fortunately, I we did know what was coming. Yeah. No, no, we didn't know. Uh, we did. <laughs> we didn't know. We didn't know there was going to be a virus called coronavirus, but we knew that the direction that things were going in, having to do with the legislation and stuff, that it was only a matter of time before adults were forced to get vaccines. I knew that. Yeah, I was yeah. talking about that years ago. Yeah. So. Yep. I think you're right about that. Yeah. So when I was yeah. a kid, I used to, um, uh, they stopped, you know, they stopped making uh, silver dimes, silver quarters, silver half dollars and stuff like that in 1964. But when I was a kid, I had a coin collection and we used to go to the bank in the late sixties and we'd buy a bag of quarters. And I don't know how much a bag of quarters, a hundred dollars maybe. So it's at 400 quarters and you could still mm -hmm. go through a bag of quarters in those days and you'd find silver quarters in there. And so I collected them. I've got a ton of, of well, not a ton, but I've got quite a few silver quarters in, a, in a, my coin collection, which has been in a suitcase for 20 years in my closet. But um, I had a fascination with silver. So when one of our partners came out with original silver at nursing cups, um, I was more interested in that mainly because I just had this thing about silver. I always liked silver better than gold. Maybe I'm an idiot, but I did like <laughs> silver better than gold. Um, and so I'm really happy to have them as one of our partners. Uh, why don't you again, Bliss, tell us a little bit about how they work? 
Yeah. Well, the great thing about silver stew is that it's antibacterial, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial. My coin, when, my, coin my coin collection will be thrilled to know that. <laughs> you can just pull out the silver silver quarters and put them right on your nipples. Sure. Um, <laughs> the, um, when women, the number one issue that women have with breastfeeding is sore nipples. And so we're always looking for, you know, things that can help in between nursing the baby that can help heal, especially if you actually have open sores um, that can help heal the breast before you have to attach the baby again. And so they're soothing, but they also have all of those benefits just from being this sterling silver that naturally is gonna help your, your breast be soothed and healed. And they are anatomically um, shaped so that they will fit your breasts comfortably. Um, they do have different sizes. And the great thing also about using them is that you don't need any other creams or oils. So again, um, as I mentioned last week, you know, one of the reasons why I asked for these particular sponsors because I believe in their products, but also because I, I support and love the environment. And I want to uh, advocate and support companies that do things that are reusable. So these are things that will last, you know, they're made out of silver. Like you said, you've had your collection since you were a kid. Yeah. So there's something that you can use over and over and then pass on. Yeah, now I just got to buy a house that I can get a room where I can display my coin collection. <laughs> anyway for, for those you should display it behind you for, for those of our listeners um if you wanted to go to www.silverusa.com and use the code instincts for 15 percent off that's um s-i-l-v-e-r-e-t-t-e.com and use the code instincts i-n-s-t-i-n-c-t-s for 15 percent off your purchase you'd be helping obviously yourself and you'd be helping our the birthing instincts podcast to keep going so we appreciate that very much on a more current news note um i think recently bliss i talked to you I, we, we talked a little bit about the how they're changing the, the definition of vaccine i think i think yeah. I, I read that into one of the podcasts recently and i, I have two new um two new examples of how the current trend is to rather than than admit you're wrong or, or admit that something is, doesn't fit the model, you end up just changing the definition or you change mm -hmm. something. Uh, we spoke about the New England Journal of Medicine and how they, they sort of misused their, their statistics to show that the miscarriage rate was only 12.6% in the first trimester when it was actually closer to 82%. Yes. Well, what the New England Journal of Medicine did in that article is instead of making a correction, they actually just edited the table. And they took out the whole line that, that shows percentages. They just took it out. Does that so now sense? they're still saying that it that it doesn't increase. They're just um, not saying anything. They're, just... they're not giving that twelve point six percent number. Okay. They're still they're still saying it's it it's not doesn't it's not risky in in pregnancy. Right. 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 They, yeah. Yeah. So they, they just change they just change the the parameters. And then the uh, do you have the do you have a screenshot of the old ones, Stu? Mm -hmm. I have both. Okay, keep it, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have both. Yeah, History. I mean, it's it's not even it's not even a secret, and they're not, and I don't know that they're shy about doing it. I didn't see them issue any sort of 
correction retraction. on their online version, it just changed. Yeah. Um, the National Education Association or the NEA recently also changed the definition of the scientific method. Scientific method used to be, um, they, used the re the, they removed the definition of using empirical evidence and the, the basic steps that are used in the scientific method, which is to create a hypothesis, test the hypothesis, draw, um, and then draw conclusions to refine the hypothesis. That's the that was a standard scientific method. Now they've, right. changed, they've changed it to um, scientific theory and consensus. So essentially, it, wow. there's no more proving that you your, your hypothesis, you just have to have consensus, but it doesn't say whose consensus. It just says consensus. <laughs> I can't help but laugh. I cannot help but laugh. I'm sorry. It's it's probably not really that funny, but it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's inevitably. And then you have the, then you have the, you know, science is science. Well, science is science if you change the definition to fit the majority of people who want to who want to be right. Yeah, it leads to the twisting of science, which is uh, again when they say follow, we're following the science. Well, they just decapitated science it doesn't mean anything anymore and uh you know this is not going to end this is just you know probably every week or two i can bring you a thing where they change the definition or they change the rules or they they edited something uh to so that you know they were caught with their hands in the cookie jar and they just you know it reminds me you know what it reminds me of bliss it reminds me of the story of the the mother who finds marijuana in their kid's underwear drawer Mm -hmm. And they confront the kid and the issue isn't the marijuana in the underwear drawer. The issue is why were you looking in my underwear drawer? <laughs> okay. And they stop and scream about the fact that they got caught, not that they were doing something wrong in the first place. I don't know. Yeah. I've lived through that as a good example, Stu. I like it. On the TV, sometimes, you know, you, how you see these drug commercials on TV, these pharmaceutical commercials where the first maybe 20 seconds is you know, the man or the woman enjoying life, they're playing tennis again, they're riding a bike, they're hugging their, their spouse, they're having a great time because of this new medication, whether it's for psoriasis or some intestinal problem or whatever it is, it's a great medication. Then the next 40 seconds, 30 seconds maybe, <laughs> is all about the terrible side effects. All about, you know, the blood- In high, diarrhea, speed, high speed. The hair falling yeah. out, the, the, you know, all these terrible things that happen. And the last five seconds are, so get this drug because it's great. And, and, you know, consult your physician. And that's a commercial. But for the vaccine, right. but for the vaccine, it's just safe and effective. That's true. Everything I hear on the radio, everything that you see on cable access channels and stuff, local TV here, where you turn on your television, I have spectrum and it goes to many to the spectrum channel. And before I get a chance to turn it, there's, they're talking about something and they're only talking about how good it is. Um, so I've got a little clip we're gonna play in a second of something that I listened to, but I, I've got a few more things I wanna to get to before that. Anyway, this, this, the, everything is false. It's just not, nothing that's true matters and the truth doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And you hit them with the, in the head with truth and it doesn't matter because they're on their course and they're, endpoint or their ideology trumps everything else. I want to give an example of some real theater that people probably have been made aware of what happened on The View. The View is not a show that I 
ever will watch, would ever, ever be caught dead watching. But of course, <laughs> when something happens on The View, it makes the, you know, Instagram and it makes the news. And recently on The View, they were going to be interviewing Kamala Harris, the vice president on set. So obviously before the show started, they had to swab all the people on set, which they probably do to protect the, the president, the vice president, that's fine. And then, you know, these rapid tests can be read in 10 or 15 minutes. But a half an hour into the show, in the middle of the show, and rather than a commercial break or anything else, the, the director walks on set and asks two of the four women on the, on the view stage to leave the stage. They don't say why, they don't say anything else. Joy Behar tries to smooth it over. But if that to me isn't political theater, what is? They could have easily had them leave during a commercial break, but they walk on while they're live not telling anyone why they walk on. These two women are vaccinated, by the way, and perfectly healthy, but they tested positive. So they mm -hmm. can't be on stage with the vice president. And then they don't even bring the vice president on stage anyway. They have her in some small set someplace else, off somewhere else in the studio. And they do, a, they do it by you know, Zoom meeting. But I just think, mm -hmm. you know, why did you make a big theater out of that? Why did you do that? What was the point? The point mm -hmm. is to get clicks because now everybody's talking about the crazy thing that happened on The View. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I have a letter here from a parent uh, who belongs to, or maybe she's a physician, I'm not sure. But she, yeah, she's a physician. She belongs to the Physicians for Informed Consent group. So she writes to the, to the, to the um, message board where, we're, where a lot of us are on it. She writes, hi all. I've also sent this to the attorney uh, for PIC but I wanted to just mention this to you. Since the new California medical exemption law, SB 276, I wrote one medical exemption. It is for a DTAP patient, which is diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, for a child who has complete titers to all components of DTAP and also has a history of encephalopathy with DTAP. I also exempted her to MMR and varicella at the same time because she was immune to these as well with high and high risk in my opinion, due to the encephalopathy encephalitis. The medical exemption was revoked and I emailed the CARES department. CARES is the new California, um, not real new, but the last four or five years, uh, department that they created, it's called the California Immunization Registry. And every exemption has to go through them. You have to get permission from the government to give your patient an exemption from something to, in school or getting a vaccine. And they at the CARES stated, it wasn't clear from my documentation whether or not the child truly had encephalitis. She says, who's reviewing these? How can anyone question the MD stating she had encephalitis just from reading the record where I said she had encephalitis? Right. And that the titers are not a CDC acceptable reason for medical exemption. So in other words, Immunity to something is not a reason for exemption, according to the CDC. I love when you shake your head, Bliss. I love when we like are in so total sync agreement. I was also not. I was also under the impression that the new law that physician exemptions would not be reviewed until we had written more than four. My partner and I fought with Christina Hildebrand from AVFC. I don't know what that is. Something something family and children, I guess, at the Capitol to ensure these revisions of the bill were added only not to see them used in practice. So here I am with a patient getting pulled out of kindergarten in three days with a completely appropriate exemption, please advise. So people write back and forth to her and 
One answer was written by um, another, another member. She says, sorry to hear of this, Katie. I recently heard that the disease chickenpox is allowable for exemption based on titers. Not chickenpox vaccine produced titers, only chickenpox titers. <laughs> they, they sit in a room and they think this stuff up. Mm -hmm. So I expect all the titers that are positive if from vaccination are not acceptable. This makes sense in that we know that vaccine immunity is temporary. Right. Okay, well, wait, just wait till you hear what my friend from, um, uh, from, this, from ACOG has to say in just a second. You are a fully trained pediatrician, right? Yet in my court case, so here's a woman that ended up having to go to court. No matter what the credentials were for the doctor speaking, they weren't good enough. I merely do family medicine. So, and so a pediatrician is of course more believable. But even pediatric neurologist, Andrew Zimmerman was discounted. With every case, the attorney asks, why hadn't I gotten medical records and talked to PCP, okay? I don't know what PCP stands for. I tried to look it up on the internet, but all it said was a mind altering hallucinogen. <laughs> so. <laughs> that wasn't it. <laughs> well, maybe it is. Maybe that's what's in the water. It would explain, it would explain a lot, wouldn't it? Uh, my history taking was implied to mm. mean nothing. All of this demeanment is brought despite the fact that the law states doctor rights medical exemption, not pediatric infectious disease specialist rights medical exemption. Care is responding in a hypervigilant way, no shit. And I think you are bumping into a rotten system. So people have asked me recently for Yeah, people have asked me recently to write letters or fill out forms for exemptions for work. Mm -hmm. And I've done a couple. Um, I don't know that they have, they're under the same scrutiny because they're not under the California law like the going to school vaccine mandate uh, is a law in California. These are for mm -hmm. private companies. Uh, I, and, and so far they've been accepted. But at some point I fully expect that they'll be um, coming down with some sort of obtuse explanation as to why I'm not qualified, right? Right, exactly. Okay, real quickly, um, we've mentioned that, I mentioned her on the show before. There's a physician who's on CNN all the time. She's the former president of uh, Planned Parenthood. Her name is Leanna Wen. And I titled this little, this short segment, which is it, Leanna? That's my title, because for weeks she's been on CNN saying that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and that we need to make it harder to be an unvaccinated person in life. We need to make them feel the pain. We need to make them not be able to go to this event or go to that event or do this without everything because it's the unvaccinated that are causing the problem. But this past weekend, in her zeal to try to emphasize why it's important that we vaccinate children all the way down to age six months, she said this. Yeah. You think about this for a second. She said, I'm vaccinated. I can carry a high viral load. So when I go home to my children who aren't vaccinated yet, I have to wear a mask because my children could catch COVID from me. Okay, now she's saying that because she wants children to be vaccinated, but what she's incidentally also saying is the opposite of what she said for the last several weeks, is that the unvaccinated are a risk to the vaccinated. Now she's saying the vaccinated are a risk to the unvaccinated. So which is it? Is it, is it both? Is she stupid? No, she's not stupid. Does she think mm -hmm. we're stupid? Apparently, yes. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Speaking of speaking of people that think we're stupid, I have to play this <laughs> for you. Um, I just want to set this up that that last week there was a webinar called "A Pandemic of the Unvaccinated," incidentally, put on by the uh, California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative. All right, again, this is another euphemism for an organization that's probably really not about maternal quality care. It's about what academicians who don't believe in the scientific method think of that's quality care. And ACOG, this was a combined webinar with three academicians on there. And they were talking about how to make vaccine hesitant people more likely to get the vaccine, how to counsel them, what to tell them. And they were giving these, spewing these things out as, as facts. And I could spend an entire podcast on this and I'm only gonna spend one more minute on it. But I submitted a question, you were allowed to submit questions beforehand. And my question had to do relatively with, with all the uncertainty out there about the vaccine, how can ACOG be so um, firm in their recommendation that, that, that pregnant women and breastfeeding women get the vaccine? And what about the future? We don't know anything about the long-term effects of this vaccine. So I'm questioning why ACOG would put out, would, would jump in with this fervor and this, this certainty about recommending this to pregnant women. So they read my question. I was not fast enough to get my camera out and my video to read them asking my question, but this was the, this is one of the answers that was given and uh, just a, a small segment of, I'm gonna play it for us. decades of experience with the mRNA vaccines. Number two, um, I can't speak to ACOG personally, but we do know that natural immunity, yes, it does provide some protection. Uh, As we saw, there are actual studies that show that we do not have um, the excellent response that the vaccine actually um, elicits. So Although natural immunity is good, it's not as good as that vaccine is better. So that's that's um, a point of favoring the vaccines over someone who has already had the infection where I would still show them the benefit of being vaccinated for that additional coverage. You got that, right? I did get that. Okay, I just wanna make sure the sound came through because we on our high tech set here, we don't have... Uh... <laughs> We don't, we don't have ways to do it. So here is a uh, uh, academician, a professor, a practicing physician, I think, uh, named um, Dr. Aziz, who is saying the exact opposite of what all the data coming out of Israel and other places are saying. And what we already said earlier in our, in our discussion about the fact that, that long-term immunity from getting exposing to the disease is better than vaccine immunity. We just talked about how vaccine immunity wears off. And yes. you even said, yes, it does. Yes. Right? But people who had mm-hmm. measles when they were you know, six years old and, and are now 65 still have immunity to measles. All right. So they say this with enthusiasm. They say this with sincerity. It's not as if she, I, I, she's not openly lying. It's, it's, it's delusional. And this is only the tip of the iceberg of what I had to sit through for an hour. And suffer. <laughs> you knew that, though. You right. knew that going in. You were going to be a fly on the wall. No, I was going to be a fly on the wall, and it was uh, mm-hmm. quite a wall. And maybe, maybe next week I'll play another clip. Uh, I've got about three or four of them that I could play. They're all about a minute, minute and a half long. And 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 I just have to say that what's happening now in the world is 
clear to everybody who's probably listening to our podcast is that is that there's there's a global psychosis going on, but it's not in the people that are asking questions. It's like I said once in a previous podcast, my skepticism isn't something you should be worried about. It's your certainty. And they're changing definitions. They're changing history. Lenin once said, or was it Marx that said, uh, I think it was Lenin, he said that the future is set, it's the past that's always changing. And, and that's typical, that's classic Marxism. You're changing the past. If the past doesn't fit with your current narrative, you change the past. You change the definition, you tear down a statue, you change the, the history books, you, you, you ban books, you don't let people read certain things. You know, there are arguments, they're lying. There's no, and, and so what it's led to is there's no trust anymore in anything that they say. Why would we ever believe anything that the fact checkers say? Or, I mean, it's a, fact checkers, by the way, is a euphemism it, or it's an oxymoron. It's the opposite of checking for facts. We're back to my favorite subject, which of course is not diabetes. It's boobs. <laughs> so, you know, we have a partnership with... Uh, Bam, and bam boobies. Yeah, I always get. I, I try to think of bamboo, and it's all. I always get. To, it's it's a great name, and they have some great products, which I have sitting on my desk in front of me because I got our sample kit. You probably That's got unfair. It. You don't have boobies, and you got the samples. Yeah, I got I got diaper rash spray. I think I'll give that a try <laughs> later. I got there's the um, stretch mark um, scar balm. There's nipple balm, belly balm, washable nursing pads a uh, yoga nursing bra, all these special things that, that of course aren't gonna get any use from me, but Bliss, you, you really like this company and I'm really impressed because I've got a whole bunch of other products. They make some teas and other things. Tell us why you like them so much. Wow, they've really expanded their line. Well, um, when we owned the sanctuary, we were very, um, research heavy in terms of picking products that we could really stand behind that were good for the environment, um, good for mamas and babies and overall, um, you know, as natural, organic and um, healthy that we could find. And we really love bamboobies. So I, they really expanded on what they have because I think originally we just had their reusable breast pads and I love them so much that I suggested that we partner with them. So I think that their code and their discount is also extremely awesome. generous. So I'm really hoping that you guys will check them out and, and share with your friends and your clients. Yeah, especially the, the, the reusable nursing pads, as you talked about earlier, we wanna use things that are um, you know, bio-friendly and renewable. Yeah. And so it, there's no waste from those, which is really nice. Um, Always better to use, fellow, reuse. For people that are listening to us, if you go to uh, bamboobies.com and use the code instincts, you get 40% off your purchase. That's four zero percent That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. So that's B-A-M-B-O-O-B-I-E-S.com and use the code instincts, the same one for the, um, the nipple cups too, instincts, I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S for 40% off your purchase. Diabetes. Diabetes. Right, so I did a lot of research. Good. I want you to start with uh, diabetes that occurs prior to pregnancy. Okay. Well, then that's, that's what's called type one or type two diabetes. 
Right. All right. So this is what we would normally call insulin requiring diabetes. Most people are, um, who have this are insulin requiring, although some people with type two diabetes can be controlled with diet and or um, oral hypoglycemic agents. But these are people who are pregnant, um, I mean, excuse me, who have diabetes before they're pregnant. Um, mm -hmm. Type one diabetes is about, about 5% of, of this category and about 95% of people in this category will have type two diabetes. There are more than 34 million Americans with uh, diabetes, or basically they're saying that's one in every 10 people. Yep. And I wrote holy Which, shit in the margin. Yeah. I had no idea that it was that high. Yeah, and 95% of them are type two. Yeah. Right. Yeah, type one diabetes is also sometimes called juvenile onset diabetes. It's the kind of diabetes you may find in a, in a, in a kid or a teenager. It's usually a rapid onset. Within a couple of weeks, they're suddenly thirsty, peeing all the time, losing weight. Um, it, it's it's pretty stunning. I've had actually had a couple of children that have had this, and it's been it's been really dramatic how fast mm -hmm. it comes on, and suddenly their pancreatic islet cells are no longer producing insulin, and therefore um, these things happen real quick. Whereas the type two diabetes is something that occurs more over time. Um, and it's not uncommon for people with type two diabetes to only find out they have the condition after the, a complication arises. So they're living with type two diabetes and high blood sugars for, for months or years before something starts to give out like their vision or their kidneys or, or something happens um, where they go in and finally get a blood test or get checked out. And they say, oh my God, your, your blood sugar is 300. And that sort of thing, and then they, yeah. right? But they never, they never. Those those people will never go into something called diabetic ketoacidosis, which is where that's only, that really only happens in people with with juvenile onset or type one diabetes. You so as a as a midwife, if someone had diabetes prior to pregnancy, as long as it wasn't in, you know, that they didn't need to take insulin to be able to manage their diabetes, it as as far as California law goes, um, it wouldn't be a contraindication to having an out of hospital birth or working with a midwife. It's only when you have the prescription of having to take insulin to manage it, that it becomes something that requires a physician to be managing your care, according to the people that um, oversee our licensure. Yeah, I, I think that most people who have diabetes type two, um, are, you know, they can generally be, and we're not talking about gestational diabetes now, that's a different story. We're talking right. about people who right. are pre-pregnancy or pre-gestationally diabetic. Um, right. Yeah, if they're controlled, if they're well-controlled, and the key for all of these people before they get pregnant is to get them well-controlled. Pregnancy outcomes are so much better when they're well-controlled and we, can, can, we have really good mechanisms to control that, we'll get to in a second. But, um, as you said, with, with type two diabetes, if they're well-controlled and they're on diet or they're maybe on a oral hypoglycemic, like what metformin, that those people could still have midwife centered births at home. Do they have to have a consult with a, do they follow, are they followed by their endocrinologists? How does that work? Do you know? Um, if their, if their diabetes is being managed with medication and it's not something that they can um, manage 
just by changing their lifestyle, then it would be more appropriate for them to deliver with a physician. Um, if, yeah. But if they're, if they're only, if they're called a type two diabetic, but they're, they're controlled on diet, then they could be delivered. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 And then, um, yeah, I would like to, I would like to, uh, break the ceiling on that and just tell you that, you know, they always talk about how these people should be delivered in the hospital and they should be delivered early and that the rate of stillbirth is significant, that sort of thing. I read three different papers on this, including ACOG's guidelines. I could not find a number about the rise in stillbirth rate. It does rise and it rises most in people who are, are poorly controlled. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. So when you have well-controlled diabetes, you don't really have this, this risk of stillbirth that you'd have when you have poorly controlled diabetes. You also don't have the risk of anomalies, which you, you can see if people that have poorly controlled diabetes are more at risk for, for what are called um, limb reduction de defects or um, sacral defects um, from the first trimester from really high sugars. They can have uh, open spina bifida, they can have limb problems, that sort of thing. Um, but, when, but again, we don't really see that very often, at least not in our population. But these people always said they have to be delivered in the hospital. They should be induced at a certain point. And I've had three or four now of people who didn't want that model. Yeah. And um, with the advent of insulin pumps built into people and the advent of insulin monitors built into people, you get real-time information about what their blood sugars are. You don't have to wait to stick their finger and, and in the hospital, we used to have to draw the blood, send it down to the lab and wait a half an hour. So we were always a half an hour ch chasing behind what their blood sugar was as we were dialing up their insulin drip. But we don't need an insulin drip anymore either because these people can just dial up or dial down their insulin. Um, and then you, they can do it from their phone. Um, yeah. While they're in labor, which is- So just why don't you tell, why don't you tell um, our listeners that are, midwives who might not have the same restrictions that I do that could care for someone who was diabetic if they so chose or a, a mom who may be diabetic. Um, what, what are the things that you would recommend to, to keep them healthy and make sure that you're kind of checking all the boxes to make sure that this is an appropriate thing for them? So these are, you're talking about women that already know they're diabetic. We're not, we're not talking about gestational diabetes. Right? Not yet. Yeah. Okay. Just, and, right. and their providers. Well, I mean, the, the important thing when you're diabetic is to have a normal, you know, try, have, try to have a healthy BMI. All right. You want to, you want to maintain your weight. You want to be, you want to exercise and you want to exercise as often as you can. If you can do five days of 30 minutes of cardio a week. That would be really valuable to being to, ma to maintaining your health and maintaining a, a, a much stable blood sugar. Um, you want to eat a diet. You want to eat a diet that's designed for you. So it's low in sugary carbo, you know, crappy carbohydrate foods and high in healthy foods like vegetables, lean proteins, grains, uh, things with low glycemic index um, and protein and fat. So um, having, you know, when you're people who are diagnosed with diabetes, generally are going to be much more alert about their diet. They're going to be better at taking care of themselves. Um, if they're not, 
if they if they if they show no willingness to really take care of themselves, they're probably not a good candidate to be in the model of care that we you and I practice. And what would you be looking at their specific numbers to see where their numbers were, or because they're they're working with insulin? Yeah, I mean, you'd want to see their fasting blood sugars essentially be below ninety. Mm-hmm. And you want to see their one hour, uh, you know, below 140, their two hours below 120. Um, generally, you want to see their hemoglobin A1C coming down. Um, but hemoglobin A1C as a, you know, as a monitoring system is not as good as checking your daily blood sugars. And for most diabetics who are especially requiring insulin, um, you know, we used to have to check your blood sugar four times a day. Now, again, you can just, if you, if you're, if you have the built-in monitor, you can just look at your thing and you can keep a uh, diary or you don't have to keep a diary because you can just scroll back and you can show that to your physician and, and control things. And you can figure out what foods work for you, what foods don't work for you. How does your mm-hmm. sugar respond to exercise? How does your sugar respond to uh, lack of sleep or stress? at work or when you get a viral illness or something like that and how how you do. And so you can keep your sugars low because again, the key to having a successful outcome in pregnancy and not having to have a bunch of interventions in pregnancy is to be in really good control going in and then maintaining it throughout. And the insulin requirements in pregnancy generally do go up slowly but surely as pregnancy progresses. And again, nothing is specific, nothing is always or never on, on the Birthing Instincts podcast. Uh, they generally go up and then shortly after birth, they, they generally come way down. Right. Okay. So watch out for being, you know, you have to watch their blood sugars immediate postpartum too, because the mothers will, will, um, they can, they can bottom out. Yeah. And one of the other things you usually do preventively for the baby, right? Because the babies, that's, that's the thing that I have heard is that, the baby's being so dependent on what the mother's sugars are. Sometimes when they're, when their system is separate from the mom, the cord is cut and the baby is separate now that sometimes those babies can have a crash. And that's what we worry about um, in midwifery. When you have somebody who doesn't have either any of the uh, diabetes, whether it's gestational diabetes or not, if you, if you don't have that managed, that's one of the big things too, is, is watching for what could be happening with the baby. So you often have donated milk on hand to be able to give the baby in case the woman is, you know, doesn't have enough colostrum right after delivery to be able to support that, correct? Absolutely. I mean, that, that mm-hmm. is something even in with gestational diabetes, and all that it's always important to have that with a supplemental nursing system available. Um, we do that. We've had to use it a few times. We don't have to use it every, uh, you know, every so often. And then again, we we do do if if the baby shows signs of hypoglycemia, which would be lethargy, jittery, jittery um, mm-hmm. yeah, that sort of thing. Then we would want to check a blood sugar on them right away. And and again, the mm-hmm. idea that a woman has to deliver in the hospital because something might be wrong with the baby afterwards is sort of it's 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 very um, narrow minded thinking. Because we can always take care of the baby afterwards, whether it's at home or if we can't do it at home and we have to take the baby to the hospital, that's fine. But why should the woman be denied the option of having the birth that she wants, the labor that she wants, simply because something might happen afterwards? 
I guess it depends on how how critical the the potential for the baby would be. So if it's something that needs, you know, could be time, time is of the essence in terms of managing it, that's very different than something that, you know, like tachycardia in a baby, you know? Oh, I'm just um, talking about related to the yeah. diabetes itself. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. If right. it, yeah, if it's something that can be managed with a little bit of milk and, and watching, then that makes sense that what you're saying about the mom being able to deliver out of the hospital makes sense. Yeah. yeah I mean, women with diabetes labor exactly the same as women without diabetes. If, if, they're, right. allowed, if they're allowed to labor. And deliver. Yeah, and not be induced. Mm-hmm. Right. And, okay, yeah. anything else you want to say about pre-existing diabetes prior to pregnancy? Yeah, well, there, there was a study, this was, a, this was sort of shocking to me. Just the numbers were shocking to me because it was a study out of Glasgow, Scotland, looking at 4,000 diabetic mothers. And this is, again, type 1 or type 2 diabetics. And they, they, this was not shocking. They found high blood sugar levels um, was a risk factor for stillbirth. And also the body mass index was also a critical factor. But interestingly enough, the stillbirth rates in type 1 diabetes were 16 per thousand. That's the juvenile onset one. The stillbirth rate in type two diabetes was 23 per thousand. So almost 50, 40% more in women with type two diabetes than type one diabetes, which I found to be surprising. And I found mm-hmm. the rates to be surprised. And I found the rates of stillbirth to be surprisingly high because they say compared with 4.9 per thousand births in the general population. 4.9 per thousand births is one in 200. That's a really high stillbirth rate. I mean, when we talk about breach delivery, we talk about the rate of stillbirth with a breach birth that's one in 500. With head down babies is one in a thousand. How do they get five per thousand? In a general population. In a general population in Scotland. What's going on in Scotland? Yeah, uh, yeah. what is going on? Yeah, so it's really interesting that, um, and then they said they went on to say women with type one who had stillbirths had higher than average blood sugar levels throughout their pregnancy, while pre-pregnancy levels were a more important predictor of stillbirth than those with type two. So type two diabetes need to be in really good control um, before they get pregnant, whereas the blood sugar levels during pregnancy are more important in, in type one diabetics as far as stillbirth goes. Even so, they're, again, they're small numbers, and if you're well controlled, the numbers really they really aren't significantly greater than than non-diabetics if you're well controlled. That was a take-home message that I got from this. But nobody would nobody gave actual numbers other than this Glasgow study, which I thought was crazily high. These numbers. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is it's appropriate to deliver out of the hospital if your numbers can be managed. Period. If your numbers can't be managed, then then you are in a high high risk category and should probably be delivering. Yeah, I, I think that I think that if you're process. if you're well controlled, exactly right. If you're well controlled and you have no other obstetrical contraindications, then you should be treated like any other pregnant woman and given a full range of options, and then let them and let them right. decide. Right. They also recommend that the, right. the diabetics take low dose aspirin. Which you and I've covered before, because they have a higher they have a higher rate of uh, a preeclampsia. Okay. Yeah. They, um, Got it. 
pregestational diabetes is considered a high risk factor for the development of preeclampsia, according to ACOG. So they recommend, uh, you know, which acid. makes, yeah, which makes sense because, uh, you know, it's, it's basing it on diet and preeclampsia from, from a midwifery perspective can usually be prevented or turned around by, by good nutrition. So yeah, maybe, and there may be an underlying vascular, um, degenerative thing going on in diabetics that may lead more to it as well. We don't, don't really know. It doesn't really say why. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and then for people that aren't controlled by uh, diet and exercise, the preferred treatment is actually insulin over any oral mm -hmm. hypoglycemic. Obviously some people don't want to take insulin. So then metformin would be preferred over glyburide. Um, as far as the, a drug uh, in pregnancy, you, first choice would be metformin, then glyburide. So anyway, that's getting a little bit more in the weeds than we really need to do that. Um, they also, have, there are a lot of people that still recommend, uh, they call it prophylactic cesarean. That's an interesting thing that to use that term for women with an estimated fetal <laughs> weight of over 4,500 grams because of the risk of traumatic birth injury. Um, the traumatic, the, the estimated fetal weight thing in shoulder dystocia doesn't correlate in anything, but it does seem to correlate in, in type two diabetics. So in general, a, a non-diabetic who might have a 10 pound baby, there is no greater risk of uh, shoulder dystocia than you know if they have a seven pound baby. But in diabetics, it does seem to, and it probably is because those babies have this, they look like, you know, they're the, the little cherubs and they really have a high concentration of, of abdominal and chest and arm body fat. If they have yeah, a fat fat, dystocia. Yeah, they have, they have yeah, they, they have that, that chunky dystocia fat thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Although they're cute as hell, those little chubby babies. Um, okay, so going back to uh, testing in pregnancy, one of the big things that we that we test for at 20 weeks um, is screening for gestational diabetes. Um, and the, the standard of care is to do the, the glucola, which right. is a very intense sugar rich, although I've seen them trying to come up with some alternatives that don't have food coloring and stuff like that. But um, from a midwifery perspective, um, we are starting as soon as someone comes into care, we're you know, I don't know if all midwives do this, but but my lineage, the, the midwives that I was taught by, we always do a diet diary by the second visit. Um, and so we're looking at what is their normal way that they're eating and then making tweaks to do preventative care, um, lowering carbs, increasing proteins, making sure that there's a rainbow a day. So they're having lots of veggies and fruits in their diet. Um, and then hope. Fully, um, and I always do uh, an A1C in my initial labs so that I can kind of see where we're starting at. Um, and that in combination with their diet really helps me get them on the right track as soon as possible if you know they come into care early. Um, well, I, I personally, yeah. Do you do, a, do you do an A1C on all your new? I do. Okay. I do, and I also do thyroid, but we'll talk about that when we um, when we do the yeah, initial no, lab just on diabetes. conversation. Right. Yeah, yeah. I always do an A1C. 
um, just because then I have a, a snapshot of what's going on before we get to 28 weeks, you know, because I don't want to wait too long if we're having an issue early on. Um, so I personally don't offer the glucola in my, in my care. I mean, if someone really wanted the standard of care, I give them the information about that and then I can send them to the lab, but I don't keep any in my office. And I speak to people about, you know, if we're eating healthy, the likelihood that you're going to have uh, a spike in your sugars from drinking that, you know, gestational diabetes is, is way overdiagnosed as well. And as soon as you get into that classification, you're treated very differently and you go down a path. So and some, um, some doctors and I, some doctors and clinics will use 130 as the cutoff. And there's so many more mm -hmm. false positives with 130. ACOG even recommends, yeah. they say they're not making a recommendation, but they even say that you should probably use 140 as mm -hmm. your cutoff. If you're going to do yeah, that, think, you're going to do the traditional 50 gram one hour post glucola testing, which you're going to talk about right now as to alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, other midwives offer things like organic jelly beans and, you know, a certain amount of them mm -hmm. equal to the 50 grams, um, drinking, uh, you know, a sugary drink that that's an alternative like orange juice or something that could give you that. Um, there's a very specific meal that you can have that has a lot of carbohydrates. It's kind of laid out for you. Um, I, when I was in LA, especially, I took care of a lot of people who were vegans and vegetarians and, you know, have all kinds of alternative diet, uh, restrictions or preferences. And so, you know, what makes most sense to me is to test how my clients eat. And ask them if you ever splurge, if you have a cookie sometimes or ice cream, or you like to drink juice or whatever, have that that day. Because I want to see how your body responds when you're eating normally and you have sugar. Um, and so that I do a postprandial. Some midwives do it two hour postprandial. I do, I was taught one hour postprandial, but you can do both. You just have to have the appropriate numbers for what it would be. Yeah, um, and then see 140 and 120. For one and mm -hmm. two hours respectively. Yeah. Yeah. And then see how they're doing. And if you have a woman who's borderline or, uh, you know, has high numbers when you take that, um, then I would give them the diet diary again and, and ask them to get a glucometer and then test their fasting numbers in the morning. And then after every meal, for five days to see, you know, this is so informational for women because what they start to learn is what foods are spiking? How am I feeling when that happens? And like you were saying earlier, how does that change when I'm walking after a meal? And they start to learn how to really take care of themselves because there's a higher statistic of women who develop gestational diabetes in pregnancy who end up getting type two diabetes later in life. So we're not just teaching them how to get this baby out in the place that they want to get the baby out, which is, you know, you can't have a home birth if you can't manage your numbers. It's also about how, how am I teaching them how to care for themselves and how to care for their children um, and eat in a more, you know, a well-rounded, sustainable way that's going to be healthy for them long-term. So. Yeah. And I you know some people, some people in certain socioeconomic groups or certain parts of the country are going to have different 
there's going to be higher incidence of diabetes simply because of the types of foods that they're generally eating and stuff like that. And some people can't shop and eat like we'd like them to eat. So it's, you know, those people need to have more uh, encouragement, more surveillance if possible um, to, to try to change it because it's, it, you know, a lot, it's really hard. I mean, culturally, a lot of people like, like, they like starchy food. Yeah. And yeah, just, lots of lots of carbohydrates, and, and it's um, not I, right, and it's not just a, a temporary change while you're pregnant because you are right. There's a significant percentage of these people that will go on. Um, let's see, up to seventy. It's estimated up to seventy percent of women with gestational diabetes will develop diabetes within twenty-two to twenty-eight years after pregnancy. Right. So you could probably head that off at the pass by changing the way, changing your life, making your pregnancy the sentinel moment where you begin to redo the rest of your life. I mean, it was for me and I, and I know that it, it is for a lot of, and I wasn't diabetic, but just, you know, learning from my midwives about healthy eating and what was coming from my foods. These are things that I never was taught by my mom or in school. So, um, and that has set me off on, on the path of helping other people and how I educate and take care of my children as well. So, um, I think that that's really important to know what the alternatives are. Um, I know that there are a lot of pregnant women, which I'm always so surprised. There are a lot of pregnant women who um, listen to our podcast and, you know, advocating for yourself for one of the alternatives. If you don't want to take the glucola, it's totally reasonable to ask to do a postprandial. And if they're not willing to do that, usually they, uh, doctors would, would be willing to have you test your numbers at home as an alternative to um, doing the glucola. Because it can make you feel really sick. You have to fast and then you have to drink this um, drink and then it's you so can't art, eat it's anything. It's so artificial, as you said earlier. It's yeah. just, nobody yeah. eats like that. Yeah, it's not, it's not but like, I mean, pregnant women sometimes will feel really sick, like very nauseous. They get sweaty. They, you know, it's just like, why put your body through that, well, you know? You know, the 50 gram glucola test, uh, Bliss, was based on a 1973 study. And it's been basically used as a screening tool ever since. Mm-hmm. And like everything else in the profession, the medical model looks at diabetes as some critically terrible thing that needs to be uh, intervened upon. And so most women who are diabetic have been convinced that they need to you know, um, see the maternal fetal medicine specialist, they need to see the, di- the, uh, the diabetologist or the, uh, the, the uh, nutritionist. They need to start fetal testing at 32 weeks. Just, you know, they're gestationally diabetic on diet and, they need to, and their doctor tells them, well, you have an increased rate of stillbirth. We need to start testing at 32 weeks, which is completely false. Um, the, even the American College of OBGYN, which I quote you know, sometimes because obviously I have a confirmation bias. And they say, if somebody's really well controlled, they don't need to have post-AIDS testing until they're 40 weeks. Um, there's no reason to do it because there's no increased yeah. risk of problems. But yeah, you, wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't know that because, because my colleagues often lay it on thick as to how scary this is and plant those seeds of doubt and talk about inductions early on, you know, just immediately when the diagnosis is made. Even if they're type one or type two diabetes, um, there's, there's, there's plenty of data that says if you're in really good control, there's no reason to even consider intervening before 39 weeks and even so going longer. And if you trust, as I've said in so many podcasts, if you trust the results of the biophysical profile and it's 10 out of 10, 
And it's okay at 38 weeks when it's 10 out of 10. Why is it not okay at 40 weeks when it's 10 out of 10 or 40 and a half weeks when it's 10 out of 10? It, it implies that the risk of stillbirth is very, very, very small. And so the, ultimately the choice belongs to the informed woman, not somebody who's been conditioned to believe that if they go past 39 weeks in six days or 39 weeks in one day, that their baby will be dead tomorrow. That's just not what happens. Right. Um, Great. Yeah, quick question, a quick, a quick, just some pearls from uh, my reading, if I may. Mm -hmm. All right. And let me know uh, if you have any questions about anything I said too. No, because I agree with what you said. Uh, you know, okay. I, I think that there's so many different ways to do the screening. And mm -hmm. some people don't want to do any screening. They just want to, they, they actually volunteer to buy a glucometer and check their fasting in their one hours at home. Totally That's great. Fine too. That's great. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, but if you're going to do a one hour postprandial, then it's got to be a, a normal meal for that woman. She can't suddenly that day eat a really healthy meal of like a couple eggs and, you know, and a glass of orange juice. If she normally eats like a, a cinnamon bun and a, yeah, and whatever, you've got to eat what you yeah. normally eat, right? Yeah, you got to be honest about it because we can't help you if we don't know, right? Yeah, and they say screening for gestational diabetes is generally performed at 24 to 28 weeks. However, people with higher risk factors, people with a high BMI, people with a previous macrosomic infant, people with a history of previous gestational diabetes, there's often recommended screening in the first trimester as well. You don't, you shake your head. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't agree that a high BMI in itself necessarily puts you at a higher risk, but. But that's what the experts that. say. I know. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> we, 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 I really do want to do um, a, a podcast one day with, um, uh, on high BMI with an expert uh, in terms of managing that during pregnancy, because there's a lot of bias and a lot of the women who came into my care with a high BMI automatically were just terrified about me taking her blood pressure, about failing the gestational diabetes test. And these women were, were not, not eating well. They just had high BMIs, you know, and took really good care of themselves. So um, we have to be really careful about automatically assuming that someone who has a high BMI is someone who um, is not caring for themselves well, you know, no, no, the, you know the, the implications in there is just, it's just a general association. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it like, is. it's like the older you get, the more likely you are to have down syndrome. Doesn't mean when you're 38 years old, you're going to have a down's baby right. or anything. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, Tell me the things that you read. Well, there's an interesting statistic here, which again, these are the things that baffle me because and I'll, re I'll read it to you and you'll, you'll know why it baffles me. And then we can talk a little bit about where does this stuff come from? But uh, under maternal and fetal complications in the ACOG practice bulletin number 190, which was from February of 2018, they say that women with gestational diabetes have a high risk of developing preeclampsia, which we talked about. Um, and they also say a high risk of undergoing a cesarean section. And then they list these numbers. 25% of women with gestational diabetes who require medication and 17% of women with diet controlled gestational diabetes underwent a cesarean delivery versus only 9.5% of controls. So my question is this, where do they have 9.5% cesarean section rate? <laughs> I mean, the average rate in the country is 30%. Right. So if you're diabetic, according to this, you're less likely to have a cesarean section, even if you don't control yourself. Do you understand my point? I mean, 
Yes. You take numbers from here and numbers from there and it, it just doesn't add up. Yeah. Okay. I, can, I don't have an answer for it because, you know, a lot of these- I don't cases, either. Like, like the ARRIVE trial had this, had this rate of C-section of like 17%. And, and, and I, I'm thinking to myself, how come their C-section rate was so low? Maybe it's academic, academia and it's an academic institution, but, but nonetheless, that's so much lower and you're inducing people than it is the general consensus of what the cesarean section rate is nationwide. So yeah. it is baffling to me that they do this and they don't, and it doesn't, you wanna scratch your head and think, how did, how did they put that in there without sort of clarifying why even with gestational diabetes who, who are, require medication, um, the rate is still less than the average rate elsewhere. It's just a weird thing. <laughs> um, Non-pharma, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. Let's see. Um, is fetal assessment indicated in pregnancies complicated by gestational diabetes mellitus? Uh, because the increased risk of fetal demise in patients with pregestational diabetes is related to suboptimal glycemic control, it would be expected that women with gestational diabetes who have poor glycemic control also will be at increased risk. Um, yeah, that's probably true. Again, they, they, they always talk about increased risk, but they never give the actual risk. And I, I just wish that they would do that um, because we beat our heads against the wall with saying things like it's riskier, doesn't mean anything. Therefore, fetal surveillance may be beneficial for women with gestational diabetes with poor glycemic control. Antenatal fetal testing in women with poorly controlled or medication requiring diabetes should start with about, at about 32 weeks gestation. I don't have any problem with that. Um, studies have not specifically demonstrated an increase in stillbirth with well-controlled gestational diabetes before 40 weeks of gestation. So testing babies before 40 weeks because the mother has diet control gestational, in other words, she failed her three hour glucose tolerance test with two abnormal values. And now you've labeled her for the rest of her life as having gestational diabetes. Um, mm -hmm. They don't need to be put in the same category as somebody who's a type one diabetic, um, but often they right. are. But often they are right. right. They are. Why do, often. why do I say that? It's because I hear from people. I hear I hear patients write to me, and they tell me my doctor said this or my doctor said that, and that's so. Again, I, I I'm a collection of anecdotes, but a collection of anecdotes is data. A decision analysis demonstrated that delivery of women with gestational diabetes at 38 or 39 weeks would reduce overall perinatal mortality without increasing cesarean delivery rates. That they say, all persu although persuasive, these data have not been confirmed by la large randomized trials. Therefore, the timing of delivery in women with gestational diabetes that is controlled with only diet and exercise should not be before 39 weeks of gestation, unless otherwise indicated, which is what I, you know, any, there's a new other indication, of course. In such women, expected management up to 40 weeks and six days of gestation in the setting of indicated antepartum testing is generally appropriate. For women with gestational diabetes that is well-controlled by medication, delivery is recommended from 39 weeks to 39 and six sevenths weeks of gestation. So again, even if well, you- Well, I mean- Go ahead. I was gonna say that, you know, the general consensus of that, that mindset without even the diabetes is that women should be delivered by 39 weeks. So 
you know, I'm not surprised to hear any of those recommendations besides that they, they are recommending that you don't necessarily need to do testing until 40 weeks and six days. That's, that's not normally what's being done. So 40, that's, 40, that's 40 good. Until 40 weeks, but you can let them go until 41 weeks. Mm -hmm. And again, if the testing is normal at 40 weeks and six days, why can't you let them go to 41 weeks and three days? Exactly. Right. And if the stillbirth rate is rising a little bit, then give them the actual numbers and then let the parents decide what they want to do. Right. And also in, inform them of the risks of induction. Right. Don't assume that deduction is the default and therefore you don't have to tell them what the risks are. Um, okay, so that's, the, that's an overview of diabetes. I'm sure we probably forgot to talk about something. I just want to know that I just want people to know that if anybody has type one diabetes or type two diabetes, where they're pre-gestationally diabetic and they want to know more about um, what it's like to have a home birth in that setting, um, the, the diabetics that I have delivered so far have offered just like my breech moms list and my and my twins moms list, they've offered to waive their confidentiality and speak to anybody who wants to have that information. So you can email me or message me on Instagram and I will send you the, their names and you can reach out to them and find out how they did it, why they did it, what was it like, were they nervous, were their family members nervous, uh, you know, what was what was uh, the whole deal and, they'll, and obviously they're going to hopefully tell you good things about our birthing team. <laughs> that's, that's, and that's wonderful because, you know, we all, I'm, I'm learning more about it now with you know, having you as someone I can talk to about some of the issues that are going on in the world right now. We need, we need like-minded people. We need people to show us that it's possible and to, and to not make us feel crazy for our decisions. So I love that you're connecting people who are diabetic, who, you know, want something different than what the hospital is offering and doing it in a way that Make sure that everybody is safe. Yeah, and we here at the Birthing Instincts podcast, we honor the scientific method, <laughs> and we honor in, <laughs> and we honor informed consent. All right, we don't we don't need to we don't need to change our definitions um, to fit our the, model. The, the OG scientific method. OG. That's OG's original. <laughs> it's like it's a slang term. Oh yeah, OG oh, yeah is okay, like okay, the okay. original. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Before they changed it. Right. Yeah. So um, I know we're going to wrap up. I just wanted to tell yeah. you something that I um, I started listening to uh, A New Earth. It's by Eckhart Tolle. Um, and, you know, in all of the you, you and I text each other sometimes in between podcasts and talk about like, sometimes. you know, what, <laughs> what are we going to do? what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to like find our, our way to, to freedom and, and choice and joy and, you know, not being frustrated all the time with the way that some people are choosing to live, you know? Um, and for me this week, it became like, I, I need to look to the spiritual path of what that, what that looks like. And, um, he was talking about the the consciousness the the psychosis basically of the collective consciousness which i think is sometimes you point to it in a different different 
conversation, like the words that you use are different, but it's basically saying the same thing. Like as, as humanity, we're not doing very well, you know? Um, so that was an interesting thing for me to look at. But what's really interesting in, specifically for the day was that he was talking about how flowers once were, didn't exist. And then, then, then they did. Um, that evolution happened and flowers started to become something that was here on the planet. And it, and it was not something that was used for utility for a human being. But what it did represent was beauty. And, uh, and that reminded us as human beings that there is more than just what we can use and what we can see, but there are things that elicit this feeling inside of us that reminds us that life has a beauty to it. And it was, it was really lovely. And then that day I ended up being at a, at a, at a garden with all of these beautiful roses. And um, so I'm just, I just want to leave our listeners you know, with go a little bit deeper, keep, keep seeking, keep seeking like-minded people and go a little bit deeper into, you know, what is beyond the craziness that we're currently facing? Um, Because there still is beauty and there still is the human spirit. So I just kind of wanted to add that in. Well, I think that's a great way to end today's podcast. I mean, I just, I want people to to stay sane, but it's not a time to sit down anymore. It's not a time to just bury your head. You have to speak up because you're, every day our liberties are being eroded. It is like the frog in the boiling water. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't see it, we don't see every day anything different today. Actually, I think we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast is a big day because we'll see if, if, um, if the healthcare workers walk out and what they do about that. I mean, it just seems like they, it seems like they know that this was going to happen and they're doing it and the, and the government is doing it anyway. And these businesses are doing it anyway. It's almost like they want chaos. And you and I don't want chaos. <laughs> we, we, want, we want simplicity. We want beauty. We want people to get along. We want to be free to make our own decisions. Uh, and if we don't stand up and talk like we do here and you and I do during the week and other and so many of my friends send me stuff all the time to to listen to and to talk and there's some really really smart people out there Russell Brand is one of them but there's some really good people you can listen to out there that have really good insight into what's going on in the world and don't think that this is um, the inevitable way things have to be they they have the upper hand right now the the the, the globalists or the 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 totalitarian people are, are they, they have the upper hand, they're winning right now. But there's a lot of us out there that are silent, that are starting to rise up and we need to talk to each other. We need to organize, we need to, if we have to relocate, we have to find community. You know, and there might be a little, there might be a little bit of chaos as things dismantle well, and break down and, and something new is rebuilt, you know? There will be that chaos. That might have to happen. There is chaos. Yeah. I mean, yeah. all you have to do is drive around Los Angeles. You see it, there's chaos. So there's chaos. But it's you're right. It's going to get worse. It's not going to suddenly change. Um, yeah. But pregnancy is uh, it doesn't have to be part of that. As a matter of fact, we can change the world by changing how people look at birth. If we could get back yeah. to remembering birth and even death uh, as part of the human experience and making it 
much more of the normal thing and looking at the beauty. You talk about the beauty of flowers. No matter how many births I'm at, nothing is more amazing to me than you know, a baby coming out and the mother and father, mother and partner, whatever, looking, pulling down, pulling their baby up onto their skin. Everyone in the room is, you know, breathes a sigh of relief when the baby speaks up, tells us that the baby's fine. And then it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. It's, it's nothing else matters. All the other crap doesn't matter. So anyway, Good. yeah, we'll just leave it there. Um, okay. And until good next time. Yeah, it's good to see you. You look great. You look you look at peace. And uh, I like the fact that you're going to be staying in one place for a little bit. Me too. Um, I'm off to Montana and we'll talk next week. So until okay, then. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 